Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, turning green backs into green jobs for blue-collar workers. We've suffered in the construction industry from this mantra over the last 10 or 15 years that your sons and daughters aren't successful unless they go to college. We're taking people from flipping burgers one day, and uh, the next day we've got them into a full-blown four-year career uh, in an apprenticeship system. Economic insulation for aspiring electricians, also commemorating the scientists whose theory is said to be the single best idea anyone's ever had. It was inspired by the worst injustice. Until Darwin reached South America, he had a theoretical understanding of slavery and its horrors. But when he got to South America, he put shredded flesh on that slave. He saw the instruments of torture. He heard the screams. These stories this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, in for Steve Kerwood. The massive economic recovery package Congress is debating could top $900 billion, with about $100 billion going for clean technologies, more efficient energy use, and mass transit projects. That's a lot of greenbacks, but will they bring back jobs? Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports on turning the green jobs rhetoric into reality. Perrette Hopkins was already struggling on low wages and no benefits as a construction worker, and the economy's slump was making things worse. Then she enrolled in a union group's program that put her skills to work weatherizing homes for the low-income and elderly in Newark, New Jersey. Caulking gun insulation, wrapping fibers, keeping heat in, you know. A lot of them, you know, really don't have the money and the funds, you know, to pay their bills every month. So we're really giving them, you know, opportunity. And they be, if you had, you had to see faces afterwards. They'd be so deeply appreciative. And I love the reactions after I do it. And uh, getting a paycheck ain't bad either. And that's not bad either. <laughs> Hopkins came to Capitol Hill with a coalition of labor and environmental groups who want the economic stimulus to create more jobs like hers. They want to insulate the bill's billions in weatherization spending from cuts, steer more money from highway projects and into mass transit, and rev up clean energy investment. And then Group 6 is meeting with Eshoo, Royball Allard, and Baca. Organizers at the Green Jobs, Good Jobs conference sent hundreds of advocates on a lobbying blitz to nearly every state delegation. Kirsten Liskey wants California lawmakers to make sure her nonprofit in Santa Cruz, Ecology Action, gets support for energy audits to help small businesses be more efficient. Plugging that funding into existing programs like ours, you're just immediately going to increase the impact by double or triple with the number of businesses that can be reached. So part of that benefits agencies like ours because we can expand our, our work, but more so it benefits those small businesses because then you're leveraging additional rebates from utilities, and then they end up saving money on their electricity. Advocates say programs like these deserve a spot in the stimulus because they quickly generate jobs, save energy, and cut greenhouse gas emissions, a triple play that should appeal to lawmakers. And indeed, the House version of the bill has nearly $3 billion for weatherization. Peter Lehner of the Natural Resources Defense Council says the key to using that money well is to train the workforce. 
we got to take these jobs seriously, and I think that's the key part of it, rather than thinking they're just, oh, a green job isn't a real job. These should be high-quality jobs, high-paying jobs, and jobs that we understand need training. A report from the Labor and Environmental Coalition Change to Win shows that green jobs haven't always met those criteria. Many are at or below minimum wage and with poor benefits. Washington Democratic Representative Jay Inslee says the House version of the bill requires projects receiving federal aid to pay prevailing area wages. Inslee says that will face a tough fight in the Senate. A green job is going to keep the coastlines from being drowned due to global warming. But if we do it right, it's also going to keep families from being drowned in debt. Labor groups also want green jobs to be American jobs. Part of the appeal of jobs insulating homes is that they can't be outsourced. The work must be done locally. But that's not necessarily true of green manufacturing. United Steelworkers President Leo Girard gave a fiery speech at the Green Jobs Conference in defense of so-called Buy American provisions in the bill that require recipient companies to use U.S.-produced iron and steel. The reality is this is about making sure that as we move to the green economy that we're not putting our jobs up for bid to China, where for every unit of production they create one, two, three, or four times as much carbon And we're not going to be a part of giving away our economic future. The Buy American provision is among the bill's most controversial elements. Major business groups and European trading partners warn it could spark a trade war. Republican Senator John McCain of Arizona tried to strip the provision on the Senate floor. It sends a message to the world that the United States is going back to protectionism. We are making a very dangerous move McCain's attempt failed, but the Buy American battle will rage on as Congress irons out differences in the bill's House and Senate versions, and President Obama says he'd prefer to keep protectionist language out. Other parts of the bill use less stick and more carrot to keep green manufacturing in the borders. Michigan Democratic Senator Debbie Stabenow pushed for $2 billion for research into advanced batteries to drive electric vehicles. Making sure that we don't move from foreign dependence on oil, the foreign dependence on technology. It's so critical that we are making, making things here in the green economy. Most batteries in hybrid vehicles on the road now are imported from Asia. Most, but not all. Sean Grimes of Ohio makes nickel hydride battery packs for a company called Cobasis near Dayton. This is a thing, a green job. It's not something of a fantasy world. I am currently doing it and probably been doing it and have been showing other people instead of always important things to America, you know, we should build something to be proud of. In the decade he's worked there, Grimes watched the company grow from six workers to nearly 200, and his passion for the work is obvious. But his pain also shows when he talks about the hits Ohio has taken as one plant after another shut down. Manufacturing has almost become history in the state of Ohio. We, we lost a facility that built the envoys and the trailblazers. That's going now, and that's a facility that we can turn over to make, you know, green technology cars here. But they need to invest in the, the jobs itself and not let it go overseas so we can actually do them and not just talk about them. There are high hopes here for jobs that do good for the planet and pay well for people. But that effort is now tied to fierce fights over free trade and fair wages. That means those who want more green jobs have a big job ahead. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington.
The stimulus package is designed to shock the economy back to life, but that won't happen without a big jolt of electricity. There are billions in the plan for windmills and solar panels, electric cars, smart meters, and a revamped power grid. All good news for Michael Callanan and the tens of thousands of students he hopes to train to meet the expected shortage of electrical workers. Michael Callanan is the executive director of the National Joint Apprenticeship Training Committee. He says the billions to repower America will provide good prospects for green electricians. One of the greatest provisions of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act and the stimulus package is the allocation of probably about $11 billion in grid investment. And uh, one of the key components of that is going to be uh, the transmission line and the development of uh, the transmission line. The stimulus package calls for over 3,000 miles of new transmission line development. Uh, To put that in context, since 2000, there's only been 688 miles of interstate transmission lines developed. So this is going to be a huge challenge for us uh, to be able to get the renewable energy uh, back to where uh, we can use it. As you gear up to to train the uh, electricians for the future in, in this green part of the stimulus package, what what are you going to be doing different that you haven't done for these many years in the past? We have been fundamentally teaching the skills required to do green jobs for years, number of years. Uh, so our focus will be on um, specifically looking at ways to increase the productivity of these new technologies. For example, uh, wind turbines, uh, the basic skills required to work in wind turbines we've been teaching for years, but the nuances of about working with these new generation of wind turbines and um, safety requirements, fall protection, we'll be focusing and utilizing a boot camp approach. So for those existing workers that have been in the trade for a number of years, we'll send them to upgrade training and uh, work specifically on things like um, uh, the skills that they need for the particular technology that they'll be working on. And then we'll be working on the the building uh, efficiencies. I think that should be our primary concern. 40% of the total energy consumed in the United States is consumed by the buildings themselves. And so it makes sense to me that we should be focusing on things like building automation, lighting controls, um, energy efficiency in, in, in our ballast, our lamps, those types of projects. So is it conceivable that there'll be all this money to build these 3,000 miles of you know, high power lines and the windmills and the solar panels and all the rest, and we won't have the electricians to build the infrastructure around them? You know, as a colleague uh, of mine is fond of saying, there may be, uh, there'll never be a shortage of bodies. What there may be a shortage of is is skilled workers. This is just, you know, a demographic issue. Uh, there's just less 20 to 25, 25 to 30-year-olds in the workplace today. On top of that, I think that um, we've suffered in the construction industry from this mantra over the last 10 or 15 years that your sons and daughters aren't successful unless they go to college. We're taking people from flipping burgers one day, and uh, the next day we've got them into a full-blown four-year career uh, in an apprenticeship system. Uh, The neat thing about uh, apprenticeship systems are they combine related instruction, classroom training, where they'll work on the theoretical aspects of their trade, and on-the-job training. And I think this is a a component that's been missed. I mean, this is a model that dates to the Middle Ages, and uh, it involves uh, an earn-while-you-learn potential. For most of these uh, apprentices, there's no tuition to join. There's no um, school fees other than buying their books and their tools, and they're working in the trade. They have a job, and they continue to, to learn their trade through related instruction in the evenings and weekends and, in some cases, uh, regular day schools.
graduates of these mid-level type programs and our apprenticeship programs on average earn between uh, forty-five and $60,000 a year. So blue-collar, green jobs. Absolutely. Well, electrification was the, the major economic stimulus in the 1930s. And uh, it seems like we're going to the same well right now. It's all about electricity. Isn't that interesting? Uh, you know, it's one of these things that it's very hard to get a value proposition. You know, your listeners drive down the street, and each day we get an instant feedback about the cost of gasoline, and we see $2 a gallon, $4 a gallon. You know, but we don't see is when we uh, leave the room and leave the light on, uh, you know, when we leave the refrigerator door open. I think we're going to need to, as a country, uh, come face to face with the cost of electricity. I think one of the great efforts in the stimulus package is to work on uh, conservation and improving energy efficiency, particularly in federal buildings. It is so much easier to work on uh, conservation and efficiency, and our return is so much better than our efforts and our success in generating clean power. The fact of the matter is less than 3% of our of our total power today is generated from renewable energy, so it's going to take more than landing a few wind turbines and increasing our solar panels on rooftops. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Callanan. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity to be on your show. Michael Callanan is executive director of the National Joint Apprenticeship Training Committee. Just ahead, he'd be 200 years old this month, but we're still learning new things about the evolution of Charles Darwin's revolutionary idea. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Climate change is going to affect everyone, but not everyone is going to be affected equally. Women and the poor will suffer most as the intensity of hurricanes, floods, and droughts increases. That's according to Lorena Aguilar. She's the Senior Gender Advisor with the International Union for Conservation of Nature. The IUCN is the world's oldest and largest global environmental network. And Ms. Aguilar joins me from her office in San Jose, Costa Rica. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much for inviting me. You've written extensively uh, about how climate change is far more than an environmental issue. You say it's a, a gender issue. How so? Well, climate change is not only about the change in environment that all of us are suffering. It's also about the impacts and the way that people are feeling these impacts. The study conducted by London School of uh, Economics, they make an analysis of 141 uh, disasters worldwide. And they were able to prove that in those countries in which gender gaps were bigger, or wider, women tend to die more than men. In some countries, from every five people that die, four are women and one is men. And this is only related to the condition of being a woman. And when you just analyze the reasons where they died, it's so ridiculous because some of them would have been prevented uh, in simpler ways, like letting them have access to the information on what to do. Well, give me some examples. How is disruption of the climate a gender issue? For example, I give you the example of Meech, the hurricane Meech in Honduras. Women in the coast uh, usually are not sent to school. So when they heard in the radio that winds of 260 kilometers were going to arrive to their coast, they didn't have any idea what it meant. 260 kilometers, it was that too much? Was that too little? 
We have other countries in Asia, for example, in which women are not allowed to leave their houses without a male relative. And they rather drown in their houses than leave them. So there are many, many other elements. The women are not supposed to learn how to swim. They should not be outdoors. They should remain with their clothes on. So many, many elements that when disaster strikes associated with climate change, they're severely being affected. Here in the United States, we had Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. Did gender play a, a role in the response or the effect of that hurricane here in the United States, a rich country? It did, especially in poor uh, Afro-American women. The effect was a lot, lot uh, harder and bigger than in other communities. They didn't have uh, access to mobility, uh, to get away from the areas. They didn't know what to do. They hadn't participated in a lot of these processes. And also to recuperate for single mothers, for example, after Katrina had been extremely more difficult than other people uh, in that area. So in essence, what you're saying is that climate change magnifies the inequalities that exist now. Yes, and at the same time, inequalities magnifies the effects of climate change. So it's a two-way road in, in this respect. I know back in, what, 2007 at the UN Bali Conference on Climate Change, uh, they set up the Global Gender and Climate Alliance. Mm-hmm. So what's that going to do, if, if anything? Well, we tried various 25 organizations within the UN system and the international organizations and NGO to come together to have one voice, one position, to really move uh, forward some of the important issues in relation to climate change and gender. So gender considerations have to be part and parcel of any international climate change agreement. Yes. Business as usual is not the way to move forward. Nobody can be left out of this big movement that we have to carry out. Well, who, who decides what's to change? Well, sometimes the same women and the same men in some of these countries are asking for it. And they are tremendous uh, agents of power. I mean, those that are suffering have the right to say how they want the change, and they're claiming for it, saying it's not possible that you do not hear us. We are 50% of the population, and we have the right to be heard. What about traditional societies? I mean, you're proposing something fairly radical then. Well, when we're talking about adapting to climate change, we're introducing all these new things new ways of planting, new ways of using the forest, all of these might go against some of the traditional ways. But we have to change. And so we're not very much concerned when we talk about change at the technical level. Why should we be concerned when we talk about change in the way women and men have related to each other and in relation to the environment? So the whole notion is that climate change can really be a a powerful force for social and and development change. Definitely. I mean, it can be, as we are seeing, um, a backlash. It's um, stopping a lot of development. But well taken, it can also be, as you will say, a can opener to improve uh, some of these disparities that we have had for centuries now. Lorena Aguilar is the Senior Gender Advisor with the International Union for Conservation of Nature. Her most recent article, Women and Climate Change, appears in the World Watch Institute's new book, State of the World 2009. 
Ms. Aguilar, thank you very much. Thank you. This month, we commemorate the 200th birthday of British naturalist Charles Darwin. It's said Darwin came up with the single best idea anyone ever had. He published it in 1859 in his book On the Origin of Species. Darwin's unexpectedly popular and controversial idea was that all species of life evolved over time from common ancestors. Darwin's theory of that process, natural selection, changed the world of science and society at large. But even today, the laws of nature Darwin discovered are still hotly debated, and we continue to learn more about the social origins and scientific evolution of Charles Darwin himself. James Moore is co-author of the new book, Darwin's Sacred Cause, how a hatred of slavery shaped Darwin's views on human evolution. All science begins with certain assumptions about the world. Darwin began with certain assumptions. Uh, he believed in history. He believed that everything happens slowly. Everything happens by natural law. These were first principles. These were given for Darwin. Another given for Darwin was that all the races are members of the same family. This was ingrained in him from childhood. And it's what led him to theorize about the common descent of all life. And, and on both sides of his family, he comes from a long line of abolitionists. This is going back to the early 19th century. Yes, it does. Both Darwin's grandfathers were passionately committed to abolishing the slave trade, which flourished at that time. And in 1807, two years before Darwin was born, Parliament did abolish the transatlantic slave trade. And in America, the transatlantic slave trade was outlawed a year later. So Darwin was born into a world in which half the battle had been won. But the slaves remained to be emancipated. And to that end, different societies sprang up, all of them supported by Darwin's family. But it's not until he takes this trip aboard the Beagle that he's confronted directly with what the slave trade really means. Until Darwin reached South America, he had a theoretical understanding of slavery and its horrors. But when he got to South America, he put shredded flesh on that slave. He saw the instruments of torture. He heard the screams. And suddenly he became fired as never before that this sin, he called it, should be abolished around the world. And from there, Darwin sees the horrors of slavery revealed as the trip progresses. He does, you know, outstandingly in Brazil. It's seared into him. He sees the remnants of slavery and, and the flotsam of slavery. And at the very end of the voyage, just weeks before the Beagle reaches England, they touch back again in Brazil. And it's there that when Darwin's walking past a house... On the other side of the wall, he hears shrieks and screams, and he thinks to himself, that can only be a slave being tortured. And he was powerless to do anything about it. And when the Beagle got back to Britain, within a few months, he had, in his private notebooks, declared himself a believer in common descent of all life. Professor Moore, do you think the echo of that scream was as important for what was to come many years later in Darwin's theory as the species that he collected on his voyage of the Beagle? The scream that stayed with Darwin for life did as much as anything to kickstart his belief in the evolution of all life, the common descent of all life. Without the evidence of the Galapagos, we wouldn't have an argument for evolution by natural selection. But why he went to the trouble and the, the risk of assembling that evidence, and in the way that he did, 
to understand that, we need a deeper explanation. He didn't collect facts, as they're called, at random. There was a reason for what he did, and his reason had precedence in his own experience in his own family. The scream of a tortured slave fired him to touch the untouchable and to de develop what he called my theory, the theory of evolution. I wonder if you might read uh, something from your book. It's on page 182, and it's where uh, he's trading letters with the professor who had been his mentor in England, Professor Lyle. Oh, yes. His greatest eruption ever in print, an absolute moral bombshell he drops in his journal of researches about the Beagle Voyage. Those who look tenderly at the slave owner and with a cold heart at the slave never seem to put themselves into the position of the latter. What a cheerless prospect with not even a hope of change. Picture to yourself the chance ever hanging over you of your wife and your little children, those objects which nature urges even the slave to call his own being torn from you and sold like beasts to the first bidder. And these deeds are done and palliated by men who profess to love their neighbors as themselves, who believe in God and pray that his will be done on earth. It makes one's blood boil, yet heart tremble, to think that we Englishmen and our American descendants, with their boastful cry of liberty, have been and are so guilty." You wouldn't find anything like this in a scientific book today. I mean, it's just astonishing. Darwin is, is making this not simply a moral matter, but a, a matter of, of religion. Kind of interesting that, that at the time that science was used to sustain slavery. Science wasn't just used to sustain slavery. Science was constructed and formulated in such a way that it kept the races together or apart. People have recognized differences amongst themselves from time immemorial. In Darwin's day, the notion of separate races, separate types of human being, separately created types of human being, was claimed to be put on a scientific basis, mainly by measuring people's bodies. You write a lot about how they would kind of feel the bumps in your head and they'd be able to That's tell. the proximate source <laughs> of it, yes, yes. In Darwin's Edinburgh, when he was a student in his teens at Edinburgh University, phrenology, measuring bumps on people's heads in order to determine their propensities and their character, was absolutely rife. It was a parlor sport. It was also a serious science. And uh, in the United States, in the 1840s and 1850s, this was considered to be the best progressive positive science. And Darwin stood foursquare against that movement. All his research in the 1850s was devoted to undermining something that people thought was the latest science. It pits him directly with uh, some of the bigwigs in science, particularly in the United States. At Harvard, there was Professor Agassiz, who's really a giant. We're not far from Harvard University right here from our studios, and many things are named after him. And Agassiz is really Darwin's great nemesis. Louis Agassiz was the greatest popularizer of science in Darwin's day. He had a fabulous influence. He had influence in Washington and from Harvard across the country. And Agassiz believed that a strong creationist America had to resist the amalgamation of black people with white people because God had created them separately. They must not be brought together. And it, frankly, revolted him. With all of the authority and prestige of Harvard University, Agassiz maintained this throughout his career there. So the key to debunking the scientific racism of the day was, was sexual selection. And this is during the Victorian era, we should say. How did Darwin come up with this theory? 
Darwin had a theory like no one else had to explain the divergence of the human races, why, why we look so different to each other, why some people have very dark skin and others very light, and their eyes are differently shaped, and thick lips or thin lips and curly hair or straight hair. All of these things Darwin saw as beauty marks that arose from the selection we make in our sexual partners. He calls it sexual selection. You choose people you think are beautiful, and if you choose a, a man or a woman with a particular physical characteristic and have children by that person, the children will resemble the parents. And Darwin says this is exactly what goes on in the breeding of fancy animals. Well, he was born 200 years ago. Um, happy birthday, Charles Darwin. What would you uh, say to him if he were around now? Oh, that's a hard one, isn't it? I, I would remind him of a statement he made towards the end of his life when asked whether in the progress of mankind we might all become immortal. And he said he thought it very unlikely because if nothing ever died there wouldn't be any life at all. Well, Professor Moore, it's been a, a great pleasure. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed it, too. Thank you so much. James Moore and co-author Adrian Desmond's new book is Darwin's Sacred Cause. Well, Charles Darwin wanted to visit the United States, but he never did. If he had, we think he would have liked an expansive river and salt marsh along the coast of Connecticut. It's about 90 minutes from Manhattan, a place filled with wildlife and wonder for writer Mark Seth Lender. At the bend in the river, a flock of mallards is dozing in tall grass that is winter-bleached and battered by snow, by wind, by high water. Worn thin, there is little cover in it, but it is all the mallards have and must make do. In these river narrows, in the tie-downs of the straits and shallows, their only true refuge is day sleep. The pulse drops. The body stops except for the low breath and the least heat it needs to keep on living. Even the sun is cold, and the mallards hold. They are an average flock, these mallards, still as the ice grounded to the bank. Closest are four drakes, laid up with their bills tucked to the crook at the back of their necks. Positioned this way, their heads are a virtual black, so dark it is not a color but a gap. Sensing my presence, the drakes, in consort, look up. And a curious thing, that gap fills with an iridescence so brilliant, reminiscent more of a scarab's shell than the soft hue of feathers. It's the angle between the shafts. Heads bent, the feathers spread. Light falls straight in and vanishes. Only when the drakes unfurl themselves do the feathers relax and close, and the full green flash of plumage, bright as a lighthouse, beacons forth. The object of all this stands between them, a single hen, invisible as an afterthought. Movement reveals her, and, now that she is standing, so do her very orange feet. The color is a sign that breeding is imminent, though the choosing is not yet complete. It is for her the drakes risk themselves this way and hide as best they can when they sleep, for the need runs deep and the mallards stay. I want to lie down beside them there on the spongy bank, nestle my face into the warm hollows of their wings and feel the pulse and listen to them breathe. But I must leave, not out of fear, nor because I am riven by the frigid air, and not because I want to. I am comforted here, 
as if I belong here, as I'm sure we used to before we knew what we know and wish we did not. Mark Seth Lender writes a syndicated column called Salt Marsh Diary. Mark also takes photographs of the place, and you can see some at our website, LOE.org. Just ahead, burn, baby, burn. Wood keeps houses warm and snug, but ignites a firestorm of controversy. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The state of Maine claims to be the birthplace of America's timber industry and fabled lumberjack Paul Bunyan. Let me tell you about the biggest lumberjack of all. He was 3,000 pounds and 100 feet tall. Slept on a king-sized bed big as a shopping mall. Everyone agreed he was a mighty big man. In Bangor, you find what may be the world's largest statue of a mythic woodsman. In Maine, it's not just a tall tale. 90% of the pine tree state is forested. It's the highest percentage in the nation. The state seal and flag both feature a white pine. The roots of forestry run deep in the hearts and minds of Mainers. It's tradition. It's part of our culture. Kathy Durgan Layton is town manager of Bodenham, Maine. Wood is a natural resource here. We have plenty of it. People make their living uh, logging. It's just a way of life here. Uh, I think that if you went uh, down any country road in Maine, you will see a wood pile. There are half a dozen wood piles behind Roland Dorina Morin's home in Brunswick, Maine. The Morins have 75 acres of forest. Roland built their home with lumber from the trees. Out back, along the fence line, are neatly stacked cords of dry-split wood, mostly pine and a little hardwood. Boy, what a nice day, huh? Yeah, beautiful day. It's midwinter. The air is crisp, the sky blue, and the white pines soar in the Morin's backyard. It's quintessential New England. Outside, it's an unseasonably warm 45 degrees. Inside the Morin home, it's a toasty 75. Thanks to the outdoor wood boiler Roland installed about 50 feet behind their house. It's in a metal shed with a 12-foot-high smokestack poking out of the top. The wood boiler looks a little like an outhouse. You want to see the inside? Sure. Just stand back a little bit. You might be smoke coming out. Outdoor wood boilers are relatively new devices. They've been around about a dozen years. Roland Morin's wood boiler firebox is surrounded by a metal water jacket. The burning wood heats the water, which is piped underground into his home. And this fire, this little firebox here, heats your entire house? Oh, yeah, but it could heat two or three that size. It doesn't take that much heat to heat the house. So on a day like this, will you be burning much wood? Or? No, no, it doesn't burn much wood, especially warm as it is, no, hardly at all. In the 1960s, the Morins were paying 13 cents a gallon for fuel oil. 
But a few years ago, after the textile mill in town shut down, Roland lost his job, and he and Dorina decided to replace their old oil furnace with an outdoor wood boiler. We like it very, very much. Dorina Morin says they like their wood boiler so much, two of their sons, who live just down the road, also bought them. This is all outside, and the heat is very steady. We don't worry about any heat. And it also heats our hot water. Because the boiler is outside, there's no wood mess inside the Morin house. And Roland has made a few special modifications to the wood boiler, so it burns clean. When it's idling properly, there's, there's hardly any smoke whatsoever. Roland Morin's sense of humor is as dry as the logs he throws onto his wood boiler. The sign over his tool shop reads, Smoky Hollow. Because, as he's learned, where there's smoke from an outdoor wood boiler, often there's a burning controversy. This boiler here is known as the dirtiest boiler in Maine. Yeah, so do you yeah. earn the reputation? Do you deserve oh, yeah. the reputation? <laughs> no. No, I don't deserve it. It was choking, pungent, acrid odors. Jeff Welt lives 500 feet down the road and downwind from the Warren home in their outdoor wood boiler. So we were smelling pretty heavy fumes. I mean, it would wake us up at night. We'd have headaches. It'd be nausea. So we can't keep our windows open. We, we do a lot of things traditionally, like hang our clothes out to dry. We don't like to use a dryer. Stop doing that. We have a big garden back here, and we were really concerned last year about whether or not we should be eating food out of the garden. We never smell the smoke. I can even open our bedroom window, which is not far from the wood boiler. Dorina Morin doesn't understand her neighbor Jeff Welt's problem. And I also, in the spring and the fall, I hang out my clothes. And I take them in. They don't smell smoke. Good fences may make good neighbors, but when it comes to wood smoke from outdoor boilers, Jeff Welt found fences aren't much help. And then my neighbors started calling, and neighbors who live up and down the street, and they pass here on the way to work, or they jog by or something, and they're saying, it's gross. Again, Roland Warren. They complain so much. Every complaint brings somebody else to say that the furnace is bad. People are not allowed to dump poison waste on my property. They're not allowed to uh, poison the water that we drink. But meanwhile, they're contaminating and poisoning the air that we breathe. That shouldn't be allowed. But in most places, wood boilers are allowed, and their number is growing dramatically nationwide. We saw an exponential growth as oil prices began to rise. Lisa Rector is a senior policy analyst with NESCOM, the Northeast States for Coordinated Air Use Management, which represents air quality agencies in six states. Just three years ago, Rector says there were about 150,000 outdoor wood boilers in the United States. Today, there are more than a quarter of a million, and she predicts the number will soon double. Uh, we estimated that if left unchecked and sales trends continued, there'd be half a million in place by 2010. The reason wood boilers are so popular these days is simple. Let's look at the big picture, okay? It's money, says Maine Representative Doug Thomas. His district is one of the poorest in the state, and wood boilers are popular there. A lot of people need to replace foreign oil. They cannot afford to buy oil to heat their homes. Eighty percent of the homes in Maine are heated by oil. On the incomes that we have here with the cold winters that we have, people can't afford it. They've got to find alternatives. And in Maine, the natural alternative to skyrocketing oil prices is wood. Wood is plentiful, it's renewable, and if you replace downed trees with new ones, it's carbon neutral.
But burning wood can also be deadly. A lot of people think of wood smoke as that smell of Christmas, but in general, wood smoke is actually a a fairly toxic substance. Lisa Rector of Nescom says wood boilers are by far the dirtiest way to heat a home. Well, one outdoor wood boiler, the emissions, the PM emissions, the particulate matter emissions from one of these units is equivalent to 205 oil furnaces and three to 8,000 natural gas-fired furnaces, or it's equivalent to about 50 idling diesel trucks. So it's like having a truck stop in your backyard. Rector says particularly troubling are the fine microscopic particles in smoke, specks so small they can lodge deep in your lungs. Those particles, even if your doors are closed, your windows are closed, they'll still find your way into the house. Those particles cause cardiopulmonary issues, asthma. They can especially be of risk to sensitive populations such as children, the elderly, those with asthma. So... Wood smoke is not a benign substance. It is actually the largest sources of fine particles in North America today. Fine particulates in the air kill 60,000 Americans a year, more than die in auto accidents. And besides fine particulates, there are other toxic pollutants in wood smoke and creosote, which builds up in smokestacks. Volatile organic compounds, polyaromatic hydrocarbons and dioxins, some known carcinogens. Armed with this information, Jeff Welt in Brunswick, Maine, who lives near a wood boiler, decided to take action. Twenty of my neighbors signed a petition that we sent to the state saying it's adversely affecting enjoyment of the neighborhood. You know, do something about it. But there was nothing the state of Maine could do. Back in 2006, when Welt complained to state officials, there were no laws regulating outdoor wood boilers, not federal, state or local. Wood boilers pit neighbor against neighbor and town against town. As the number of wood boilers increased, so did complaints. Lisa Rector of Nescom fielded many of them. In many cases, and and I've heard of them personally, people have called me looking for help. They've gone to their local town officials, their state officials, and there really is no regulatory avenue to address these. Jeff Welt convinced officials in Brunswick, Maine, to pass an ordinance limiting wood boilers. New ones were banned in Brunswick, but old ones were allowed to remain, their use restricted to winter. A few other towns in Maine also approved ordinances restricting wood boilers, but most didn't. And Lisa Rector says people in those places affected by wood boiler smoke had little recourse. So they are required to either live with the situation, move, or bring a lawsuit and try and address it through private party nuisance lawsuits. And I said, I'm not suing my neighbor. You know, I'm not going to do that. In fact, Beth Thomas of Bodenham, Maine, wound up doing precisely that. She sued her neighbor over an outdoor wood boiler. Thomas, her husband, and two small kids lived on the outskirts of town. It's just north of Brunswick, which had restricted wood boilers, but Bodenham still allowed them. The Thomas family lived downwind from a commercial laundry that used an outdoor wood boiler 24-7. I would be out in the garden getting these headaches, intense headaches. It'd be, it would get hard to breathe, and if it were really bad and the creosote-based smoke was coming into the house itself, which happened frequently, I would just put the kids in the car and go. So what did you do? What did I do? I went to, I called everybody I could find that I knew who might have some control or some information about this, and uh, from the air toxics to the air bureau to the, everybody, and they, the only thing people could say was that you can, there's a nuisance law, you can sue them. Or you can move. That was the other thing. You can move. 
Thomas's lawsuit went nowhere, so she tried to get Bodenham to regulate the boilers. At town meeting, the debate was intense. Town manager Kathy Durgan Layton says it was about the most controversial issue in Bodenham history. It really divided people. It became quite a divisive issue. It was clear that the citizens of this town did not want to enact an ordinance that would limit or prohibit the use of outdoor wood boilers. And why is that? I think it was a statement of their rights to burn wood. And we're not after wood-burning rights. That's silly. Again, Beth Thomas. I mean, I grew up in Maine. We're wood-burning people. This is what I was trying to tell neighbors, and it just fell on deaf ears. I'm all for emissions control. You know, what comes out of that stack needs to be filtered. When Bodenham residents voted to keep wood boilers unregulated, Thomas moved to Hollowell, Maine, a town that banned them. Hollowell is just south of the capital, Augusta. There, Beth Thomas filed a complaint with officials demanding something be done on the state level to replace the patchwork of local ordinances. State lawmakers were reluctant to take up the issue. I couldn't believe that burning wood could possibly be a health threat. State Representative Seth Barry became an unlikely champion of state limits on outdoor wood boilers. His father has one at his home. But one whiff of a poorly run wood boiler was all Barry needed to change his mind. If you you walk through a cloud of creosote smoke, you know it and your friends know it for the rest of the week (laughs) because you, you can't wash it out of your hair. Barry became a man with a mission. His colleagues in the Maine legislature began calling the freshman lawmaker Boiler Boy. Barry held hearings, angry, contentious meetings that drew huge crowds. These folks had been told that we were trying to take away their wood boilers, and so they were given stickers, uh, bright uh, fluorescent stickers saying, don't take away my right to burn wood. And they lined the halls of the legislature, and by the end of the hearing, once the technical information came out, once the personal stories of folks who lived next to certain problematic wood boilers came out, many people who had come that day to wear those stickers were taking the stickers off. Barry's emergency bill, phasing in limits on emissions and where wood boilers can be installed, was passed overwhelmingly by Maine's legislature. And now Maine joins Connecticut and Vermont with laws regulating outdoor wood boilers. Ohio and other states are considering similar measures, and years ago, Washington state banned them altogether. And that's what Maine Representative Doug Thomas fears will happen in his state. Thomas was the major opponent to Seth Barry's bill, and until it passed... He sold outdoor wood boilers. I really don't want to sell them anymore because the way these regulations that that Maine is writing are, it's going to be complaint-driven enforcement. And so I might sell someone a a $6,000 or $8,000 wood boiler that they've got another $4,000 or $5,000 in installing and then they can't use. I don't want to do that to people. I'm not going to do it to people. The federal government has been slow to respond to the wood boiler issue. Twenty years ago, the U.S. EPA began regulating indoor wood stoves, setting strict emission standards for them. And in fact, Beth Thomas, who had to move because she lived near a polluting outdoor wood boiler, has one of the new indoor stoves right in the living room of her home. But she's in the minority. Despite federal regulations, 90% of the estimated 10 million indoor wood stoves in the U.S. failed to meet emission requirements. The clean ones just haven't caught on. That's why Greg Green from the EPA's Office of Air Quality and Standards hopes to speed things up with boilers. 
Instead of requiring new cleaner burning wood boilers, the EPA is setting voluntary guidelines. You know, many times our regulatory programs, by the time we go through the rule writing uh, process and, and actually implement uh, those rules, you're talking about a four or five year time period. Uh, but with the problems that we were seeing with these stoves, uh, with a voluntary program, uh, we realized that we can more than cut that time in half and start getting some of these emission reductions in, in a one or two year time period. So that's what we went with. The EPA's new guidelines for outdoor wood boilers went into effect about a year ago, and manufacturers have started making cleaner burning wood boilers. Rodney Tollefson is vice president of Central Boiler, the nation's largest manufacturer. He says their new models cut emissions by as much as 90 percent over the old ones. We actually have people that have installed them, and in one case we know of the neighbor question this guy, when are you going to get that thing up and running? And the furnace had been running for almost a week, and they didn't even know it was operating. The new cleaner-burning wood boilers are considerably more expensive, and they haven't been proven in the marketplace or backyards. But Maine State Representative Doug Thomas isn't giving up on wood boilers. The technology has its place. It's not for urban areas. It's not for built-up areas, residential areas. It's for rural people who have land and have access to, to wood that would otherwise be going to waste. And it's a great alternative source of heat for the right people in the right place. Brunswick, Maine, Roland Morin has finished loading logs into his outdoor wood boiler. It warms the home where he, Dorina, and their 10 kids lived through many a long, cold Maine winter. In the living room, Roland relaxes by putting a scroll on their old player piano. It's a scene of a time gone by, in a place where the white pines still grow incredibly high. But these days, the neighbors live closer than they used to, and yet, in many ways, they're more distant. Our story about outdoor wood boilers was produced with the help of Kathleen O'Neill. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Baskin, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins and Marilyn Gavoni. Our interns are Lindsay Breslau, Liz Gross, and Christine Parrish. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lurish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. 
The Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs around the world. Uncommon heroes dedicated to the common good. Learn more at skoll.org. And Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. Pax World for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.